my head. Um, good evening. So we're going to continue our series on identity tonight. This is where we've been. Uh, what an identity rooted in Jesus Christ looks like. And we've explored aspects like I am a disciple, I am a brother or sister, I am a priest, uh, I am a clay pot, and tonight our focus is I am a pilgrim. And th this theme actually makes me remember visiting the Tenement Museum in New York City. How many people, so the Lower East Side, how many people have actually been there? Okay. Yeah. If I, so, yeah, no, some of the older people in the room have been there. It's, a, it's an amazing place. It took my, my kids and uh, we all went there, I think it was last October. Um, and these are residencies, actually, Robbie, you can go to the next picture. Um, these are residencies that once housed hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of immigrants, uh, mostly from the mid-1800s to the early, or um, the first third of the 1900s. And they came from all over. Uh, they came from Ireland because of potato famines. They came from Italy to seek a better life. They came Eastern European Jews to escape persecution. Actually, Daniel's grandmother is one of those immigrants. In the late, later 1800s, it was, it was estimated to be the densest city in the world at that time. I read some statistics like, or I know this is what I heard on my tour, that the law required that there would be one toilet for every 20 people in the tenement apartment uh, buildings. Um, can you imagine that ratio in the dorms? I'm sorry, I, I cannot. <laughs> uh, we took a tour, we learned that sometimes about 10, 12, even more people would, would cram into these little apartments. It's hard to get a picture, that's like the size of one typical room, and there'd usually be a, a much smaller kitchen, and then maybe one more bedroom that was even smaller than what you see there. And you would have multiple families or um, various people living in there. Um, they would also work in there. This is a sewing machine, the tour that we took, uh, they were actually Jewish immigrants that would sew and iron, and, and uh, that's how they, they did their work. But they didn't go to the factories to work. They worked inside these tiny little apartment buildings, like seven, eight, ten of them at a time. Kids, grandparents, everybody. You know, you got to ask the question, well, what brought them here? Uh, you actually go to the next picture. You get a, there's this, like, sort of sleeping conditions. There's, like, I think there's three people on the right. There's somebody in the back. You can't see them because of the, it's dark on the, on the bottom, but there's somebody else on the top. Um, it just gives you a little taste of... of of tenement life in the Lower East Side of New York City. Like, what brought them here, right? And, you know, for a season, they traveled halfway around the world. You could call them pilgrims for a season. They left their country, they left everything that they knew. In many cases, they left everything that they had, except the clothes on their back. And, and part of the answer as to, like, what brought them here was the hope of finding a better home. And, you know, there are stories not just like this in America back in the 1800s and early 1900s, but there are stories happening like this today, right? I mean, some of you are aware, at least I hope most of you are aware, of the thousands of people arriving in Tijuana from Honduras. Um, they're there at the border. Um, our immigration um, agency is only really able to process 100 asylum seekers in Tijuana a day, but there are thousands of them there, and soon more thousands will arrive. Um, and you know this, this story of this, these huge groups of human migration, uh, it's happening all over the world today. 
people becoming pilgrims to search for a better home. Maya Angelou, you can go to the next slide, Robbie. Maya Angelou, an American poet, she said, the ache for home lives in all of us. And, you know, you hear that, and we get that. That means very little to no explanation. Home is not so much a place, though often it is, but it's more of an ache. And it's, it's a place where that ache can be fulfilled. Maybe not completely, albeit never completely, but to some degree or other, home is a place where that ache in our heart can be fulfilled. It's an ache, it's a universal desire, what? To be loved and to love, to know and to be known, to belong somewhere, to flourish, right? That, that, those are the associations that we have with home. Um, there is something deep within us that longs for that kind of place that we can call home. Caitlin, is she here tonight? Yeah, so in prayer this week, Caitlin, we prayed along these lines. She mentioned that, you know, we can also, have, we can often have the perspective that we're just trying to get by when we're here at Princeton as students. We're just managing for these days until what? We can get back home. You know, it can feel like school and class is an inter interruption. Um, and home is where you really long to be, where you want to be. And we, and we pray that we would engage with the things here, because God has put us here for the present. Um, but that feeling, that urge, it, it's a very natural, very understandable feeling. Some of you are excited and can't wait to be home for a few days, either at Thanksgiving break or at Christmas break. Um, Right, some of you yesterday, many of you from the South, Florida, Texas, Southern California, I know what you were thinking yesterday, you were thinking, like, this place in New Jersey, this ain't my home. <laughs> but even when you go home, you know, there could be a sense that home, particularly as a college student, home is not quite home anymore. I have just one foot in the door. My friends, they're kind of drifting away. My friends that I have back home. My family's changing. You know, My life isn't completely here anymore. It's also elsewhere. And that can be really disorienting. Some of you, I know, like, when you think of going home, it, it, it's a really disillusioning thing. It's a really discouraging thing. Because home, you know, there are broken relationships and bad memories. And that home does not feel like a place that you can belong and that is easy, and that you flourish. Some of the older students, juniors and seniors, I'm sure the thought pops into your head now and then, um, you know, where will my new home be when I graduate? Uh, you know where your home has been, but there's uncertainty as, where, as to where your new home will be. This ache for home, whether it's literal or figurative, what does this tell us about ourselves? It reveals that we are made for a place. A place where we can flourish, where we can work with joy, where we can rest with security to know others and to be known. And it's a place that we, we long that it would never disappoint us, and even though this is a dream on this earth, that home will never end. And when the scriptures tell us to view ourselves as pilgrims, it means that we're to understand that we're here on a journey. And we're passing through this world. That's what it means to be a pilgrim. And we're moving to the world to come. A pilgrim understands that even the best of homes here in this life, that these are temporary. 
good, but they're temporary. And they're meant to be a pointer to the permanent and the eternal home for which we've been created. So at a most basic level, a pilgrim is somebody on a journey. Someone who has left his home or his country voluntarily, voluntarily or involuntarily and is now on a journey to what? To a better country, a better place. A pilgrim is willing to leave what she knows and what she has and instead pursue something better, something higher. And this better thing now dominates their heart. I mean, we're going to get to the scripture passage that we have here for tonight, but I mean, it made me think of uh, when I graduated in 1994, there were three guys, um, three students from the class of 94, who set out to see a baseball game in every single stadium, in every single Major League Baseball park that summer. Um, they called it their pilgrimage. They were pilgrims for that <laughs> summer because of their love and devotion to baseball since they were kids. Uh, it was their overarching purpose for a season of their lives. And I like that image, right? What pilgrims, what they fix their eyes on, what they fix their eyes on is their destination or is their goal. That's what's going to shape and direct their thinking, their actions, and their life. So our scripture passage here tonight that's going to help us unpack this theme, this identity of being a pilgrim is in Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 16. So listen as I read the word of God for us tonight. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, his sons and grandsons, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he, this is Abraham still, was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, this is Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the big idea from this text and a, you know, the mindset of a pilgrim is, I'm on an adventure in a temporary place where I experience God's promises in part now with a better destination ahead. So I'm on an adventure in a temporary place where I experience God's promises in part now with a better destination Ahead. And I want to break this up into smaller chunks and just consider each of these. Right? So the first part, I'm on an adventure. Um, go back to you know Hebrews 11, it's right there. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance. He obeyed and went. And this line right here, even though he did not know where he was going. 
Right? That last line really hits me. He did not know where he was going. Like, the, the, I love having the GPS thing on my phone because it tells me, like, you know, you will arrive in an hour and 11 minutes. This is how many miles away it is. Like, here's the visual route, right? Abraham had none of that. Like, God just said, take your stuff and go. I'm going to show you the place. Eventually, just start going. Right? And he did. He obeyed. And so did Sarah, his wife. Abraham and Sarah left their homeland. They left their comfort. They left what they knew. I mean, it's just like those immigrants we saw in the tenement museum, or in the tenement apartments. Why? Because God called them to go there. God had a different story in mind for their lives than the story that they might have imagined back at home. We could call it, this was God's adventure for them. You know, and it had lots of highs. <laughs> I mean, on this adventure, they became wealthy twice. They hit what I would call the lottery. Um, it, it's, it wasn't money, but they just happened to show up and through really strange circumstances. They were just given tons of livestock. That was the lottery back in the day, <laughs> right? Had lots of highs. Um, Abraham was victorious in battle against people much, much more, um, much stronger than he was. But then it also had lots of lows, like deep, deep lows. You know, Sarah was childless for 25 plus years. And just imagine the grief and the confusion surrounding that. I mean, it had so many, their, their adventure with God had so many unexpected twists and turns, but it was what God intended for them. All the twists, all the turns, all the highs, all the lows. Because God called them to that. And so if you are a pilgrim, like if you're a follower of Christ, like you ought to have that mindset. Like I am a part of God's story. God has a story for my life. God has an adventure for me. Like if you don't want to use the word adventure because it's too much for you, that's fine. But God has a story for you that is unfolding. And, and there will be twists and turns, highs and lows, but it's the story that God has for you. And you know, you think of like some of the things that you get excited about, or some of the adventures that you look forward to, like when you apply for colleges, you just like, where, well, where's my next adventure going to be, right? Or you're thinking about this summer, like, where am I going to be this summer? What adventure is, is, is in store for me? Or grad school? Or where you're going to work after graduation? Like, you can view these as many adventures. But what I'm saying is, like, all of that together is God's adventure for you. This is part of what it means to be a pilgrim in this world. But then there are also difficulties. It's not just the highs, but it's also the lows. Like, you don't know what they are in the future, but God does. He knows what you'll be facing. And, and you need to see that God's hand is over all of that, just like it was for Abraham and Sarah. All of those things are a part of God's larger and bigger adventure for you. And in that, he wants you to come to know him better, right, and come to trust him in a deeper way as your story unfolds. So, I'm on an adventure. But I'm on an adventure in a temporary place. You go to the next. Thank you, Robbie. So here's Hebrews 11 again. Look at verse 9. Abraham and Sarah made their home, there's that word, made their home in the promised land. But later in verse 9, we find out that they're, they're in the promised land, and that's their new quote-unquote home, but they're living in tents. This is a portable, non-permanent home. Right? Maybe today, if they had the means, this would be RVs. Um, then, verse 13, they're called aliens and strangers on earth. Uh, other Bibles translate these same words as they're sojourners, nomads, exiles, transients, right? Because they're living as foreigners in the land to which God has called them. 
And then there in verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Sarah and Abraham made their home on the earth, but they knew their country, that this world they were living in, that it was only temporary. They were longing for a better one. I mean, do you hear what that's telling us? This country, the earth, it's comparatively speaking inferior to the country to come, heaven. And and right now, you and I, we live in a second best place. As great as this earth can be, and as wonderful as the gifts that God gives us can be, this is a second best place. And it always will be a second best place. That means the experiences we enjoy, everything that we acquire here, I said, as good, as wonderful as they may be, they won't be, they can't be as satisfying as the experiences and things of the world to come. And we should know this, because God sends us constant reminders of this inescapable reality. The inescapable reality that everything here is temporary and can only be enjoyed for a season. Maybe a short one, maybe a long one, but only for a season. Toys break, right? <laughs> Friendships fade. Applause recedes. Stock markets crash. Fashions change. You gotta get rid of the old clothes. Physiques weaken. Hair braids. Flower dies. I like flowers die. You can go on and on, right? But we know there's just every day there are constant reminders that this world is temporary. It is second best. And it's, and it's not just the things in and of themselves that are temporary, but even our joy and satisfaction in them is temporary and fleeting, right? Like, you just think about, like, go back to when you were a kid and, like, that Christmas toy that you just nagged your parents for, your grandma for, just over and over for months and months, and then you get it, and then by April, you, don't, you really don't even care about the toy anymore, right? The satisfaction of getting it is gone. It takes months. Maybe we desire a certain kind of relationship, a certain job, a certain accomplishment, and it brings joy and satisfaction for a season, but then it disappears. It doesn't last. And then we have to look to the next thing to satisfy us, and then the cycle just keeps spinning on. But this is the world, right? This is the best the world can do. And do you really believe that there is more to this life, more to this world than that which we can see? Right? That, that there's an unseen world, an unseen reality, and actually that reality is more real than this reality. And I know we live in a scientific age and we only believe in the things that we can see and take, test. And, 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 but, but faith says, no, like there is more to this world than this world. 2 Corinthians 4.18, do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let me tell you about this, just to emphasize this, that everything's a temporary place. The tale of two people, right? Person number one, King Tut, king of Egypt. He ruled as Pharaoh for ten years, from nine years old until his death at 19. This is around 1324 B.C. is when he died. Um, and when he was buried, he was buried with thousands and thousands of pounds of gold. I, I try to capture it there in the picture. I mean, I think everything you see that looks gold, it is gold in that picture. <laughs> right? Thousands of pounds of gold, treasures, unimaginable treasures, food that was preserved, 
Why? Because the hope was that he could take it with him into the next world. Take it with him into the next life. That's person number one. Person number two, William Borden of Yale. He was raised in a wealthy family from Chicago. I mean, this, this a long time, it was 100 years ago or so, but like, this, this, this is you all, right? Just fast forward 100 years. He was raised <laughs> as a wealthy friend of Chicago, go Cubs, right? He's a Yale graduate, 1909, Princeton Seminary grad, 1912, so he was just across the street. His intention was to go to the Uyghur people in China and to build up the Christian church there. And he went by way of Egypt to study some of the languages there, and he gave up his earthly fortune in favor of building up the church in places where the church was in its infancy. And while he was in Cairo for about one year, he died of meningitis. And there's his grave right there in the bottom right. He was 25. So it's a tale of two men, both died at a young age, 19 and 25, two very different graves. Right? They're only a few miles apart. <laughs> One is just this humble little grave in some back alley in, 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 in Cairo. The other is, you know, a, a massive tomb with all sorts of, of treasures. One person who's trying to take as much as possible with him into the next world. And one person who is willing to give up the stuff of this world because he knew of the world to come. Two very different perspectives. So that reality that this world is temporary, it shaped William Morton of Yale and his decisions. So how will that same reality shape our decisions? How is that reality shaping, in the present, shaping our decisions, shaping our plans, shaping our priorities? So let's continue, Robbie. So I'm on an adventure in a temporary place where I experience God's promises in part now. So look at verse 13. They, which is referring to Abraham and Sarah, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Right, so do you remember, Abraham was told by God, like, you know, go to this land I'm going to show you. He didn't know where he was going, but he knew God, he trusted God's promise. And one of the things that God said is that, like, look, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And another way I'm going to bless you is I'm going to give you lots of land. Right? And then they show up, and that promise of having lots and lots of land, Abraham never has it fulfilled in his life. Now, his descendants do, but Abraham received that promise, and he had to receive it from a distance, and it was to be fulfilled for his Descendants. How do I know this? I know this because much later in life, when Abraham is in the land and Sarah dies, Abraham has to go to the local real estate, you know, the, the, the local people who own all the land, and he has to buy land in order to bury his wife. He doesn't even have a plot of land to bury Sarah. And many years prior to that, God said, I'm going to bless you, make you a great nation, give you a great name and I'm going to give you lots of land. But Abraham does not see it fulfilled in his lifetime. But yet he believed the promises of God, that they were still true for him, even though from his vantage point, they didn't quite pan out in the ways that he might have expected when God first called him. 
for applying it to us, like what does this mean for us as we welcome God's promises from a distance? Right? In part, this means that we recognize that we will not experience the fullness of God's promise in this world. So take, for example, what Jesus Christ promised. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 100% true for those who are in Christ. Absolutely true, because he is absolutely faithful to his word. But that doesn't mean that we're always going to feel or experience that intimacy with him. In fact, there might be times where it doesn't feel like Jesus is with us. We feel alone, spiritually dry, or disconnected. And in part, welcoming God's promises from afar means that while they are true, we will only experience them in part now. In one day, the fullness. But in the meantime, while we're pilgrims, we experience God's promises in part. And yet they're 100% true. And they will be 100% fulfilled. So finally, I'm on an adventure in a temporary place where I experience God's promises in part now and then with a better destination ahead. When you have the ultimate destination in mind, it gives clarity and purpose to the journey in the meantime. If there is a better country, heaven, and there is, then that reality ought to make a difference in how we live our lives here and now. And throughout history, one response that Christians have have made has been to completely disengage with the world. Why? Because the world is temporary, there's a better world to come, and to completely separate or disengage yourself from it. And the vintage example, maybe some of you have heard this, the vintage example is Simeon Stylites, the elder. He was a man who climbed a pole in Syria in roughly 400 AD, and he remained up on the pole for 37 years until he died. Um, I think he came down every now and then, but he really separated himself from from the people around him. Um, Jesus calls his followers to engage with society. He says, you are the light of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Christians ought to get involved and reshape society in big and small ways. Um, I think do we, a couple weeks ago, did we pray for Scott Lawrence, um, an ophthalmologist in, I'm just trying to remember, an ophthalmologist in Ethiopia, right? And I know, as a, as a Christian brother, I know part of his motivation is, yes, to bring healing and wholeness to people here in this world now, in part, his thinking is and motivation is shaped because he knows there's a better there's a better world to come. But in the meantime, with the gifts that God has given him to do good now, um, to bring glory to God, to, to even in just a little small corner of the world. Um, I mean, I know our brother Mark Shrine, he does the same thing on mercy ships. He just I just gave him a hug when he came in not too long ago, and he just got back from Africa doing similar things, similar work as a doctor. I'll just give you another example. One of my good friends, he had the chance of becoming a partner in a law firm not too long ago. And But for him, this would mean a very long hours and frequently working late into the night. And he actually chose to, to quit that particular practice. He left. And instead, he joined a firm that paid him less and where there were fewer opportunities for advancement for him. And he must say, well, why would he do that? And he did it because of his three young kids. And because one of his great desires in life is to be with his kids, 
to, and that his kids would come to love the Lord, and he feels he needs to be there with them and to be used by God in their lives. And, and so his view of what is eternal, right, his kids' relationship with the Lord, having that father-son and daughter relationship with them, it has shaped his career path and his decisions. Those eternal considerations, they were the higher priority for him, higher than earthly, temporary consider- considerations like making a partner. So well, what about us? Are we thinking about the eternal reality that is to come and letting that, allowing that to shape how we live our lives here, our priorities here and now? Are we being salt? And like, how are you going to be salt? How are you going to be light? What, what are the unique ways that God has plans and prepare, preparations for you um, to be salt and light in your adventure with him. And one final thought to connect this all to the gospel for just a couple minutes is realize that Jesus secured your salvation by becoming a pilgrim himself. Right, I, I call Jesus the backwards immigrant. I, I struggled with that. I, the reverse pilgrim, the foolish alien, I don't know what you can come up with. right? But typically when people immigrate, they immigrate to a better country. They leave their war-torn land, or their land of restricted opportunities, or a land of injustice, or persecution, and they immigrate to a, a better country. And Jesus completed it the other way around. He, that's why I call him the backwards immigrant. He left the superior and better country, heaven, his father's side. And he entered into this inferior, second-best place that you and I And this is what we celebrate at Christmas, incidentally, that Jesus, the eternal Son, he left his Father's side in heaven, and he physically entered into this world in the same way that you and I do, you know, born as a baby. And I I don't know, maybe there's some stories out there of people actually immigrating from a better country to a worse country, but they have to be very few and far between. And I bet in most cases where that happens, it's got to be about love. Like, it's got to be about how the person immigrating to a worse country wants to be reunited with somebody that they deeply love, like a family member or a spouse or a child. I mean, there, there really could be no other explanation. And this makes me think about a song that we sing at Christmas. It's an older song, but it's a, it talks about Jesus. Thou who was rich, beyond all measure, all for love's sake became poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender and sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. Why did Jesus become a pilgrim and enter into this world? It was all for love's sake, the hymn says. Because he loved his Father, and that was his Father's will, and because he loved us, and he wanted us to be with him, and he wanted to be with us. And Jesus spent much of his earthly life as a pilgrim, in transit on a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, while he was still in utero, Fleeing Egypt as a young baby because King Herod sought his life. And then later during his ministry, he said about himself, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lie his head. It was a pilgrim. He came to be with us because he knew his home ultimately wasn't here. I mean, but he, he didn't, he knew his home wasn't ultimately here, but he came to be with us nonetheless. And he knew that our home ultimately wasn't here as well. Which is why he was willing to die on the cross, so that he could take us 
back with him to the Father, back to his home. And there are these beautiful words that Jesus says when he, to his disciples just hours before his crucifixion. He says, I go to prepare what? A place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. So that where I am, there you may be also. And that place that Jesus is talking about, it's the same place that Abraham and Sarah were looking forward to. The city with foundations and architect, and whose builder is God. So may we desire and long for that place that Jesus has prepared, that Jesus desires and longs to take us to someday. And as we desire that in our imperfect but hopefully increasing way, don't miss verse 16 of uh, this text. I'll just remind you that therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is pleased to be our God when we desire Him and we desire the place that He has prepared for us. Closing words of Psalm 84, verse 6. How blessed, how happy are those whose strength is in you, O Lord, and whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for each person here tonight. And Lord, you can look into their desires, their heart, and you see where each one is at. And I pray that you would draw each one closer to yourself, to come to know you in a deeper way. Lord, Father, you give us such good gifts so often in this world. I pray that you would help us enjoy them. I pray that you would help us know that the source of all good gifts it's, it's you and your hand um, but I pray too that as, as we enjoy them rightly uh, that we would remember that this world the gifts that we enjoy everything around us this is not all that there is and I, I pray that in that that we would remember maybe know for the first time or believe for the first time that there is a world that is more real than this world. It's the world that you are preparing. It's the place that you are preparing, Lord Jesus, for your people. So, Lord, I pray that you would stir up our affections and you would help us order our priorities, our actions, in ways that align with these realities. So, Lord, we seek you tonight. We give you thanks for the unthinkable thing that you have done, Lord Jesus, that you, that you have come to this world to seek and to bring people back to your Father's side. It's amazing. Um, and we give you praise and thanks for that. We are humbled. We pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.